0: Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail It Ortho Podcast, your go-to podcast for everything orthopedic knowledge-wise. Um, I am one of the hosts. I'm Dr. Cole, and I'm accompanied here by my little guy. Go on, speak
1: up now. <laughs> hey, guys, This it's uh, Jay Fitz, the um, you know the head the head of the uh, the podcast. If y'all don't know, thanks for joining in. You know, sometimes you just gotta let them, you know, feel that feel feel that way, guys. You know, sometimes you just
0: gotta let them. Get the confidence up, and that's what I'm doing here with Young Jay. Um, you know, speaking of confidence, Young Jay, you're, you're about to be a PGY4 here soon, at least this year. Uh, how do you how do you feel like you're doing? You know, you feel like uh, you feel like you're starting to get in the operating room a little bit more. Or what, where do you think you're at?
1: Oh uh, yeah, man, it's it's just um, it's an experience, man. Every every day I just try to get a little bit better, get more comfortable. Uh, with more cases, things that I can do. And I feel like I don't need a lot of uh, supervision. You know, I feel like I could handle it either if someone's there or if they're not, you know. Uh, so yeah, just looking back, you know, my hand's not still shaking in there, shaking and sweating <laughs> back when they, uh, when, they, when they, yeah, man, <laughs> when they hand you the knife. So that's that's done. So, you know, things heading in the right direction. What about you?
0: I remember back in the day, we were sitting with Dr. Bill Broom, She was showing us how to do that succulent suture. We was Sitting there sweating like man, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, remember that. Yeah, man. Uh, now you do them all day,
1: knocking out. Right.
0: <laughs> it's crazy how time goes. But nah, you know, I feel like we're starting to get in the operating room a little bit more, a uh, little bit more autonomy and learning how to do some things, man. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and you know, just trying to learn as much as I can. Uh, but enough about us, man. Let's go ahead and um, tell talk, talk about the podcast, Jay.
1: Yeah, man. So we got another exciting show. We have Dr. George Gansudez. He's coming to talk with us about club foot, congenital club foot, uh, which is, you know, high yield for both on the boards and, you know, just in the clinic. You're going to see this. You got to know how to deal with it and what it is and what's going on. So we, we talk about a lot of good tips On this podcast, Dr. Gansudis he did his uh, residency at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and his fellowship at the uh, Rady Children's Hospital out in San Diego. He's now uh, in Virginia with the Pediatric Specialist of Virginia. And he was so nice and so kind to give us a little bit of his time and do an amazing talk on Clubfoot. I learned a lot and wish I would have had this talk before I started my Pete's uh, rotation, uh, you know, for the first time during my second year. So hope you guys get something from it and uh, enjoy. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole.
0: Dr. Ganzudis, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Again, thanks so much for uh, coming on and being a guest. We're looking forward to this talk, so welcome to nailed it ortho
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. And I myself, for people that are listening, I'm I'm Cole. I'm one of the hosts and I know we have uh my little brother Jay on here somewhere. Whatever.
1: Yeah. I'm the guy who keeps this show <laughs> running. Uh we're we're actually about thirty minutes late because of uh Dr. Cole right now. So
0: Oh here we go.
1: Thanks there, y'all guys a bus. about <laughs> there's
0: a bus. I'm always just thrown under the bus so every time. You know, that's you know, it's how it goes. So. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Ganzeau, we, we kind of like to start out the podcast um, asking just a couple of questions, getting to know you a little bit better. Sure, of course. And a, uh, a fan favorite question that that we typically ask is, uh, if you had a piece of advice that you'd give to yourself now, that you from when you started residency, is there anything that you'd go back and, and tell yourself, you know, uh, regarding anything? residency or just any any type of um, advice?
2: You got this. That's it. It's just, you got this, just persevere, survive, learn something from even, you know, your mistakes, other people's mistakes, just learn something every day. You pretty much only have 60 months to learn everything you're going to learn before it's your name on the bottom of the page. And just take advantage of that time. It is temporary. You will get through it.
1: I like that. That is actually something I have to tell myself every day <laughs> and uh, so that's uh, that's awesome and I think uh, now
2: I, I, now I'll, I'll put the more petty side of me on there which is I found someone a couple you know a year or two ahead of me who I thought I was a better resident then and I said you know what if that guy can make it I totally got this. <laughs> hey, that's, that's, th- that's, that's my more truth. petty
1: side. Yeah. Yeah, Jay, J- that's what they say about you, huh? Uh, uh, over there. <laughs> whatever. Hey, whatever helps, man. I, you know, I really, I really do think it's important to think a little bit further ahead because, in my opinion, residency can kind of beat you down. You you work yeah. pretty hard, and you know you're not getting a lot of good jobs and Thank yous and things like that. And you expect it to perform at your peak every day. And uh, you just have to kind of just keep trying to do your best and try to learn as much as you can. Like you say, it's only a five year process, hopefully. And, uh, you know, take what you can. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. For most
2: of us. Yes,
1: absolutely. Take what you can and and try your best to become a a good surgeon if that's what you chose to do. Um, So, on to the next question. Uh, A lot of people who are interested in pediatrics, I hear often believe that they have to go to pretty much, if they're, if they're interested in orthopedic pediatrics or pediatrics orthopedics, they feel that they have to go to like a major academic center. Uh, Do you think that's always the case?
2: Um, I don't think so. I think it's, it's definitely a choose your own adventure thing. Um, You know, where I did my residency, we had very little exposure to pediatric orthopedic trauma. And so when it came down to my final two choices of where I really wanted to go, I would have been happy at either of the two places, but if I was gonna be joining a place that had level one trauma call, I don't feel like one would have prepared me as well as the other one did. So I ended up choosing the one that had um, the bitter, bigger trauma exposure, but I think I would have been fine at either place. Uh, I, I don't think you have to go to one of the whatever preordained places, you, know, you want to go somewhere where you're going to get your hands dirty. Um, I will tell you that one of the preordained places that I interviewed at, um, I would rather not have done a fellowship at, um, quite frankly, there was little operative opportunity for fellows, it was, you know, told to me that it was the residence service, the fellows are there to observe, and I would have been like, no, thanks. Oh, wow. <laughs> this isn't a watching career, this is a doing yeah. career, yeah, I need to sure. do. So, I mean, I, I think you, we're all smart people. There are no dummies in ortho. Uh, it may feel like that someday, but there really aren't any dummies in ortho. And I think we know ourselves pretty well for the most part. And, you know, you just got to trust your gut. Your gut got you this far. So,
0: very true. Yeah. Those are all, all good words and um, good advice. This is actually uh, right around time. I know a lot of people are just getting their fellowship interviews uh, today. I know. And then, You know, around this area, so there may be some residents listening to this. So definitely take that into advice or into consideration.
2: There's no one place. I mean, it really bothers me. It's like if someone says they don't get into Harvard, their life's over. It's like, man, that's totally not true. Yeah, the biggest advice I give to people now who come to rotate is like, go get educated as cheaply as you can. That's Mm. my advice to you.
0: I like that. That's that's a good one. Uh, And kind of still just rolling off of of what we're just talking about. What like our last question is what brought you uh, to choose pediatrics of all the different fields?
2: Uh, I went to med school wanting to be a pediatrician and then I did my PEDS rotation at a very small hospital that had um, uh, in the peak rotavirus season. And so I uh, hated my rotation and I realized I like to do procedures, got switched on to orthopedics. And uh once I got into ortho, I did the typical roulette of trying every single subspecialty there is and we eventually got found my way back to Peds Ortho.
0: Perfect. That is like a, a great a great uh, circle round, great story. Well um uh, let's let's get into the topic of the day, which is uh, we're gonna yeah. talk a little bit about some club foot. And uh I know you, you gave talk a little bit earlier today, so hopefully we get, we get to round two here. <laughs> Um, and hopefully we cover some high yield things and cover some things that if there's some attending listening uh, onto this, that hopefully that they can kind of use in their practice. Uh (laughs) So um, kind of start out with just a general case, because, you know, this is how they may present and say, for example, you're doing clinic and you are referred a newborn who the pediatrician thinks they have clubfoot and that's all you have to go by. Um, What are, I guess, what are some of the things that you, I guess, we look look for uh, when we're talking about, we're taking a history and we're examining these kids? And then um, I think after that, we can kind of get into what clubfoot is.
2: Sure. So, I mean, I will tell you the biggest mistake I made when I first started out my career was when someone referred a patient to me as a clubfoot, I believed them. And so a couple of times I caught myself going through the 15-minute spiel to a family and then I would uncover the baby and be like, oh, that's calcaneal about this foot. <laughs> that's not even club foot. Forget everything I just said. Your kid's fine. Go away. Yeah. Um, so uh, for me, my first thing is kind of trust but verify. So my first thing when a baby is sent to me, I eyeball the baby. I don't believe them when they say it's club foot because one of my most popular lectures I give regionally here is a lecture that's titled, It's Not All Club Foot, where I teach them about. Uh, the different foot deformities, what is club foot, what isn't club foot, and how to get, um, how to properly, uh, properly refer. So for me, the full musculoskeletal exam on a baby is 45 seconds or less. It really does not take a lot of time. And depending on what you're examining the baby for, uh, you have to be very methodical in how you do it. For every newborn that I see, whether it's for club foot or anything else, I check the hips first because that baby's got to be calm for the hip exam. So the baby stays in mom or dad's arms fully bundled up until you are ready. And once you're ready, take the baby, put them on a nice surface. Mom and dad can be nearby, keeping them happy. Uh, Get the baby uh, naked from the waist down, leave the diaper on to the last second and then take the diaper off, do a quick hip exam, get your eyes at the hip level, make sure there's no difference in abduction at all. And then uh, I put that diaper right back on, I don't wanna get wet. And then I go down to the feet and make sure I got all five toes. Uh, and then I'll assess for the four foot deformities. The most common four foot deformities are metatarsus abductus, club foot, calcaneo valgus, and then finally vertical talus. Uh, I'll assess for all of those. Make my way up to the knee. We already did the hips. I'll squeeze around in the belly, make sure nothing else is going on around there. Up to the clavicles. Make sure clavicles are present. Do a quick torticollis check. Check the fontanelles. Roll the baby on their side. Check the spine. Look for sacral dimples. And then do a morrow and I'm done. So. That is uh, my very quick uh, physical exam. The history now, I can do it in reverse because if I got a happy baby, I don't know how long I got the happy baby. So I'm just gonna take advantage and do that exam by the way. I go and get the history. As far as history for clubfoot goes, there's nothing that matters. Either it is or it isn't, except for family history. But again, it doesn't matter. Clubfoot's binary for the most part, either it is or it isn't. Uh, and then when you know, you're talking about history, there are a couple of things that might show up on a test question where they say, which of the following is found to be um, related to risk for a future sibling for clubfoot and family history is by far the most important. Um, maternal, sm- uh, maternal smoking is something that's on there. Uh, everything else is kind of really small odds ratio, uh, you know, risk factors. So nothing really too much to talk about there. Um, as far as limb length discrepancy and things like that go, There's really not a lot of uh, data looking at clubfoot and acquired limb length differences with the exception of those that come along with tibia and fibular hemimelias. Uh, Beyond that, it's it's very rare to have a clubfoot be the source of a limb length discrepancy. And for almost all these kids, their neurologic status is normal, grossly speaking. When you look microscopically, some of these kids have a, uh, a, a diminutive vessel appearance and they're gonna be you can have a two vessel foot, you can have a one vessel foot. Um, that comes into play way later where if you ever get a late referral you always and you see scars on the foot. they've been previously treated. you want to be darn well sure that someone didn't turn a three vessel foot into a two vessel foot or a two vessel foot mm-hmm. into a one vessel foot.
1: Absolutely yeah that's, that's probably good to know before doing any kind of surgery. You got to know what that vascular status is is like before getting too far and i'm actually even glad that you just kind of briefly went through that musculoskeletal exam i know uh earlier on in my residency and i you know i didn't even know that we got consults on babies and all yeah. of a sudden i get a page and it's uh you know a baby that was just born you know 12 hours ago and they telling me to come and you know evaluate them something's going on with their knee i'm like well hmm, where 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 is he first of all i don't even know what floor he's on uh, <laughs> But yeah, so that was like one of the things that I, I had to take some time out and start reading up like, man, how to even do a full exam on a baby. So uh, they don't teach it
2: to you in books. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you yeah. that much. You something got to learn by doing, unfortunately.
1: Absolutely. Uh, but like you say, the the babies, they either they're like not with it or they, they can be kind of relaxed
2: for you. And you know, you might get them a little oh, upset, yeah. but they're get them while you got them. Yeah. You got to I will tell it. you that hip exam is such a subtle exam. I, I've watched people do like Ortolani and Barlow where they're like lifting the baby off the table. And it is just a very mm-hmm. subtle, the Barlow and Ortolani, very subtle movements. And you lose it when you're kind of uh, a little rough on the but we get like ortho rough. This is not a brutane exam. Mm-hmm. There's a time and place for Brutain and it's not in the newborn nursery.
1: Yeah. And they're so small. You don't want to put all that yeah. force on them. They're so cute.
2: Exactly. But uh, <laughs> uh, so back
1: to the club foot. Um, (laughs) so we we mentioned you know just kind of when you was going through that summer you actually mentioned some of the the factors and uh family history and things like that to look out for but can we just briefly talk about the etiology of of clubfoot
2: so uh first and foremost just to throw this out there it is not a positional disease it is a genetic disease so our genetic condition i'll say um, so the, it's not a packaging disorder, right? The packaging disorders are metatarsis, adductus, hip dysplasia, and torticollis, when there's too tight of a space, um, for, for clubfoot, there is a genetic etiology. Um, Dr. Matt Dobbs and his wife had done a lot of research looking at specific genes and gene tests and things like that. To be honest, there's probably not a lot of, um, applicability for those kind of things. This is one of those things where if you find out your kid's got clubfoot, you come see a pediatric orthopedist who talks you off the ledge for 25 minutes and then, you know, we'll go through the whole Ponseti treatment. I do probably, I don't know, three to four prenatals a month where I'll have a very scared mom or dad come in talking about, is their child going to be able to walk or play sports or dance? And, you know, I say, yeah, look, not a problem. And every pediatric orthopedist has their four or five athletes or famous people who've had clubfoot they throw out of parents. And it really helps calm them down a little bit. But as far as other than uh, family history and maternal smoking, I doubt there's anything that you guys will ever be tested on about it.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. I think that's um. I think that's good. And I think you even mentioned one of the things that I remember seeing a question on that I didn't even know uh, was about the the vessels and I think yeah an absent anterior tibial artery was some was associated with clubfoot. I had no idea.
2: Um, yeah. But yeah, that's just to kind of reiterate and point that out. So, yeah, so it's, it's important to think of clubfoot as not just being a foot problem. The entire leg below the knee is altered, right? The calf is smaller. It's, it, it's going to be have um, an ultimate strength that's slightly less than the other side. And so if the tendons are malpositioned, if the ligaments are tight, it's, it makes sense that there may be some kind of angiogenesis problem there too. Right. Um, and I see you're bringing me to the uh, the next slide. This is very important in your assessment. So when you look at a, at a baby's foot, how do you know it's clubfoot? You guys all know the mnemonic cave and it's a very useful mnemonic, but perhaps not, none of those is more important than is Aquinas. You really don't have a true clubfoot that doesn't present or that, that presents on day one without Aquinas. You have to have Aquinas. If you don't have aquinas, you may be more of that like so-called positional clubfoot, but if it's not aquinas, it's probably not clubfoot. It might be one of those like little positional metatarsis adductus that doesn't really have a varus component with it. Um, and so when uh, we talk about the the cave acronym, it's important to remember it in that way because that's also the way in which we correct it. So we'll start in that order. So talk cavus first. Cavus, by definition, is plantar flexion of the first ray. It is a four-foot pronation. It is incredibly important to, when you look at the baby's foot, the thing that makes the foot look the most normal on that first day is that cadence, because everything else looks so crazy. The only thing that makes it look somewhat normal is the fact that first ray is trying to get plantigrade, except that is deceptive, because that first ray is one of the major problems. The first ray is so plantar flexed that it has now dissociated itself from the rest of the foot. So by correcting that cavus first, by providing a supinating force with dorsiflexion slight eversion to that first ray, the base of the first metatarsal head, you are now restoring the forefoot, midfoot, hindfoot alignment. And what Ponsetti talked about is restoring the calcaneopedal block. So the calcaneopedal block is the entire foot minus the talus. Because the talus is the center around which all foot correction occurs. Not just in one plane, but all three planes. So by restoring the, the first ray up in that normal position, now you can externally rotate and abduct by pushing on that first ray with a fulcrum on the lateral tailor head. And that will evert the talus taking you out of varus into valgus. It will abduct the forefoot, taking you out of adductus. And then once you get externally rotated enough, you can then talk about treating the equinus. What made Ponsetti's treatment so revolutionary is he completely understood the foot and its anatomy and how things work before he figured out how to correct everything. He had to go and understand the foot before he decided he was in to. Just say, I'm just gonna push here and make the foot look straight. And so that kind of leads into a little bit of the history, if you guys are okay going off a little bit here for a couple yeah, seconds. Yeah, let's do it. Sure. All right. So, going all the way back to Hippocrates, Hippocrates described clubfoot and he talked about serial bandages and he understood that it was important to overcorrect the foot to prevent recurrence. And then, you know, between Hippocrates and the Dark Ages, All that information was lost. And then you got to fast forward to modern medicine where they tried to manipulate these feet again and not operate or not, you know, leave them as they were. And they just basically pushed on the foot. And the fulcrum they used most commonly was the calcaneal cuboid joint. joint. And they were trying to um, open up the foot through that joint. And it just, you know, we know the foot doesn't work that way now, but they didn't back then. And so because they had failed on these serial manipulations, people were operating on these things left and right. And it wasn't until Ponsetti really studied on this. And Ponsetti's history was he was a surgeon born in Mallorca in Spain. And when Francisco Franco took over and started purging the intellectuals, he fled to Mexico. And in Mexico City, somehow someone from Iowa came down there and they had some conference and they brought him back up to Iowa City and basically said, look, go wild, man. And so he started, you know, letting his mind carry him wherever, whatever uh, he could get interested in. So he had tons of work on DDH, tons of work on feet, and it was through his work with stillborn feet where uh, where he really helped us understand how the foot moves. And so, in the traditional Ponsetti method, um, he corrected what he called Kite's error. So Kite's error is putting your foot or your, your uh, thumb on the calcaneus or the calcaneocuboid joint where he said, no, that's the wrong place. If you touch the calcaneus at all, you're blocking the eversion. So you put your finger on the lateral head of the talus and you allow the calcaneus to evert underneath the talus to externally rotate and evert and even dorsiflex underneath there. So the anterior process of the calcaneus comes up into the sinus tarsi. And uh, there's a couple really good videos of this. Ponsetti's model uh, is available on a video through Mm -hmm. globalhelp.org. If you go to YouTube and look up globalhelp.org and Clubfoot, there's a couple really fantastic videos, one of which is is titled Where to Put Your Fingers on a Clubfoot, which is a great video. (laughs) Um, But that kind of talks about the whole anatomy, correction, history of Clubfoot. Ponsetti, when he published his First paper on clubfoot was I think 19. I'm mean, gonna screw up these these years, so I wrote them down at some point and I misplaced my card. But I think it was like 1963 was his first paper, and then 72 was his second paper, and it really wasn't uh, until a couple decades after that where he really started to sway people's minds, and that was when his 34-year follow-up was published. And you want to talk about fate? If someone from New York City had grabbed Ponsetti. I don't know that we would have been where we are today, but people in Iowa City tend to stay around Iowa City, and we were able to get that long-term follow-up. So from 1996 to 2006, the percentage of POSNA surgeons who were operatively treating club feet as their primary treatment went from 72% in 96 to 12% in 2006. (laughs) So... To tell you how impressive a career Ponsetti had, he got an above the fold, full page, above the fold obituary in the New York Times when he died. Right. So, you know, I don't know how many surgeons get that, much less orthopedic surgeons. Maybe DeBakey got it. I don't know.
0: (laughs) That's a, um, yeah, I think it's good to know the history. Like Once you start reading or or hearing it, you kind of just want to hear more and more, and I feel like... probably talk about this for for a long time but no i think that's um you know it's crazy the impact that he had and and how he kind of revolutionized you know the treatment of clubfoot. and i mean it's just kind of amazing all the all the work he was able to do and and what he was able to get published and you know the different difference he was able to
2: make yeah i mean he's he's just a really impressive guy and his stuff for the hip is also equally as impressive a lot of work on stillborn babies. So we thank those uh, families for letting us learn on their children.
0: Yeah. And and just to recap a little bit, again, about the anatomy. And yeah. so can we go again over what the C-A-V-E is for? Absolutely. And, so and what part of the foot, uh, like, you know, forefoot or hindfoot that we're referring to? When we sure. Talk about it.
2: So, um, you know, the, the, the four deformities are present on that day one. Your day one cast should assess is there cavus, not all of them have cavus, but is there cavus and uh, does that cavus need to be corrected before you start pushing on the foot? Because what that does is that that is the forefoot that is completely off from the midfoot, which is then completely off from the hindfoot. And by restoring the uh, position of the forefoot by getting rid of the cavus, you've now got the Uh, forefoot and midfoot hooked back up together. So when you then put an eversion force on the first metatarsal, that pushes the entire now connected midfoot through the cuboid, which engages the calcaneus. And so that is the calcaneo block. So as you push on that forefoot, you are rotating the entire midfoot and hindfoot together. All those deformities correct together. And you, Ponsetti said, you have to get at least 50 degrees of external rotation of the foot relative to the position of the knee in eversion before you talk about dorsiflexion. And He would talk about that you could feel the anterior process of the calcaneus just below where your thumb is on the lateral tail or head. And when you can feel that, that anterior process, you know you're ready to do the fourth deformity, which is the Aquinas. You may not address the Aquinas until you've corrected the other deformities. It's a huge mistake. There's a very, very specific exception to that rule, and that's for something called an atypical complex club foot, which has a very good paper written by Morquende, and I think Poncetti was still alive and wrote that paper.
1: So it like the the key... You know, this is just kind of summing it up, and I know it's more complicated than this, but sounds like the key is getting the eversion through the first metatarsal initially. You need at least 50 degrees of external rotation, uh, but but by doing this, trying to get this plantar flex meta, uh, first, meta, first metatarsal uh, back everted, that is actually correcting the forefoot, uh, sound like we say forefoot, midfoot, and some, some to some extent the, the uh, hind foot as well?
2: Correct. So as you ab, so when you push on the first ray externally, it pushes on the calcaneal cuboid joint, which then everts the calcaneus, dorsiflexes the calcaneus, and rotates the calcaneus out of, um, out of varus into valgus. There's an analogy in one of those global help videos that I really, really liked, where he said the calcaneus is like a ship cresting a wave. When a ship crests a wave, it has to pitch, yaw, and roll simultaneously to stay afloat. So does the calcaneus when it moves. You can't just try to move it in one direction. It happens in all three planes at the same time. So as you push on that foot externally, you're moving the calcaneus in three planes underneath the talus in the sub, through the subtalar joint.
1: Okay, I like that, and also I kind of heard you say, and it just sounded like an excellent pimp question. Probably a little bit more so towards fellow level, but <laughs> you can't, yeah. uh, you can't even consider, you know, really fixing the Aquinas until you get about at least 50 degrees of external
2: rotation before trying to work on yeah, dorsiflexion. Yeah, that's a test question too. So what happens if you do that is if you cut the Achilles and you forcibly push on the foot to try to get him out of Aquinas, the calcaneus isn't gonna move so it's still stuck underneath the talus. And so where you're gonna dorsiflex is through the midfoot. And that's where you get an overcorrected, horrible flat foot mm. uh, with clubfoot. It's, it's bad news. I mean I love treating clubfoot because you can take somebody that would otherwise have a lifelong debilitating problem and before they're even in preschool, they're completely done with their treatment and look awesome. I mean if you know a handful of them go on and need some small surgery along the way, but nothing major. The major goal of the Ponseti treatment is, and I I skipped this and I shouldn't have skipped this, is a painless, flexible, plantigrade foot. It's not a foot designed to win a beauty contest. It's going to look a little bit different than a normal foot. Um, You know, the most obvious way a foot looks different, if you look at your own foot and you look at your extensor digitorum brevis, and it has that nice convexity to it, every club foot has a very underdeveloped extensor digitorum brevis along with every other muscle in their leg. And it looks a little different and even if you have a perfectly symmetric and length foot and there's no real shoe size, shoe size difference you can always tell which one is a club foot by looking at the EDB so the goal of Ponsetti is to stay out of the joints and that's why his treatment is so important because once you operate on the club foot and you go through a joint that joints never the same again
1: so we can move you know and, you know we pretty much did just talk about the Ponsetti method for the for the most part but yeah what what about if you do nothing at all? Say this. Uh, well,
2: actually, but before I get to that, there's a couple things I didn't talk about which have to be talked about. Uh, I, I'm I'm bad for not mentioning it. It's a long leg cast. It's always, always, always a long leg cast. You cannot control the rotation through a short leg cast. There still are some jokers out there trying to do it that way, and you can't do it. And I know because I see their patients long-term <laughs> and it, it just, it, you can't correct it that way. Um, so that's first and foremost, most important. Now, if you don't correct this, um, I don't know where, if you guys have ever traveled internationally, but you will see people uh, out there who have um, uncorrected club feet, but they're not young people because through Ponseti's international organization, almost every country in the world has people treating club feet now. Um, But when I traveled to the Dominican Republic in the early 2000s, I used to pass a guy every day who would panhandle and had a unilateral club foot. And I got the courage one day to go talk to him and say, hey, man, you know, I'm working at a charity hospital. We can fix your foot. He said, I was never educated. My family gave up on me. This this is the only way I can make money is by panhandling. And so, you know, that guy was literally walking on the dorsum of his foot right because that's how the, it, it's shaped like a club look at that uh the people listening can't see it but on the screen if you're watching it on youtube you can see the infant model that first picture you'd be walking on the the lateral border of your calcaneus and your talus, and so your body it, it what's really weird is you develop a, like a calcaneal fat pad there yeah, yeah and so, you know, you can't wear shoes it's a lifelong problem Yeah. Yeah, I can,
1: yeah. I mean, of course, that would be uh, a big issue, right? I mean, you'll you'll probably have where your skin calluses there in that area, like you say, the uh, problems with shoe wear. I would imagine. I don't know. Is there is there any increase in like infections or or anything like that? I guess skin breakdown.
2: Um, is- you know, not that we've not that uh, I know of. It, it is possible to fix way later in life with like a triple arthrodesis but i will tell you that um, so a few pd pods like to travel overseas dave spiegel from chop is one of the ones who's published the most on um, beginning the pond city treatment in the walking age child and he has really amazing results treating kids uh between ages one through six and i think something like only like 14 or 15 percent of those kids needed operative treatment so even in an older kid, you can start Ponseti treatment. I mean, it just works. And that's actually how, when you get a relapse, your first treatment isn't the knife. Your first treatment is casting again, trying to restore some of that uh, treatment back by casting it out.
1: Yeah, so I guess oh, that's the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was trying Getting to catch all the up points. with you there. <laughs> he did, he really did. We went through everything in a, in a very uh, uh, efficient manner, I think
0: actually do we do let's let's uh touch on bracing when do you use, oh, do you yes. use um uh, so, abduction bracing or when yes. or
1: you know how long
2: so you you have to so here's the thing it's it's kind of like i don't know if you guys had uh dental braces i did uh growing up and i never wore my retainer and shockingly my teeth kind of went sort of back to where they were <laughs> before yeah, we started yep, same so here. that's the yep, analogy i give to, <laughs> that's the analogy i give to every parent which is Look, the orthodontist can put you in braces, but if you don't wear your retainer, your teeth are going back. And it's the same thing for the feet. So I, my first visit with these families, whether it's the prenatal visit or it's the first time I meet them uh, uh, postnatally, I go through the entire thing where I say, my treatment phase is somewhere between three and eight casts. Your child may or may not need an Achilles tenotomy, but your child will definitely be braced. Now, the duration of bracing is debated very intensely. Ponsetti, when he first described it said, oh, up to two years you can brace. Had about like half his patients relapse. So then he extended it to between five and six years. I will tell you that it's the the true Ponsetti acolytes stick to five years. And when I say acolytes, I mean like they are disciples. (laughs) They are out there like hardcore preaching uh, about the true Ponsetti way. If you talk to a lot of people out there who are treating club foot, it varies between three to five years for the most part. Um, And so the the thoughts of bracing are that you must, must, must brace until at least their third birthday. And the reason is because that child is still rapidly growing and the foot's gonna try to go back to its original position. Um, The forces pulling it back into the original position are the original tightness of the muscles that, that cause it in the first place. But you can also run into some issues with the tibialis anterior tendon, where if the tibialis anterior tendon is attached slightly more proximal or slightly more plantarly than it should have been on the dorsum of the first metatarsal and the uh, medial cuneiform, and it's a little more on the medial surface there, you'll get what's called dynamic supination. So when you enter swing phase of gait and the foot needs to dorsiflex so the toes can clear the ground, you have more of a varus and supination pull than you would otherwise have, and over time that can cause you to get a more static deformity of recurrence of your adductus and recurrence of your varus. And so that is the most com- that and true equinus are the, the deformities that you'll see come back. What is clear is that you should treat recurrent equinus. What isn't clear right now is what is the specific trigger. To do a tibial anterior tendon transfer? Is it isolated? Like if you identify in a four-year-old dynamic supination, should you take that child to the operating room? We don't know yet. Or should you wait to see if that child does develop dynamics uh, dynamic supination that results in a static deformity? It's very debatable. I'm pretty aggressive on that because um, I would rather not have to tell a family you got to brace a kid for six years if I can just treat the dynamic supination now, because I don't know if you guys have kids, but I can tell you by their third birthday, a lot of these parents are done with bracing.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, but that's that's the importance of uh, bracing, and it, it is. This will be on your test questions, where it is the most important factor for recurrence is um, failure to comply with the bracing protocol. And I stress mm-hmm. that with the families. I don't blame my families for anything. I'm a, you know, I'm a very It's all on me, kind of the buck stops here kind of surgeon, but I let them know, man, if you guys stop bracing, you're going to guarantee your kid a relapse.
0: Yeah, and you say you brace till the the age of three, and um, I think you did a a great job describing the dynamic supination. I read that many times uh, in the past, and I never really – I understood it, but I
2: didn't really understand it per se. Yeah uh, but
0: the your your explanation was 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 great as far as Once um, you
2: see it you'll never yeah. you'll, you'll never like that's why it's so important like you said before when you go to examine a baby you get a sense of how you're supposed to do it it's the same thing a lot of this is I, I will tell you that my residency I was trying to get in the OR as much as I could right but you really do learn a lot in the clinic if you pay enough attention. And I really tried to avoid a lot of clinic as a, as a resident. And as a fellow, I started to realize, oh, man, I'm going to be seeing these people in the office way more than I'm going to be operating on them. So I better learn how to be an office physician too. Yeah. And so uh, it, once you see these kind of things, you won't forget.
0: It. And, and one thing I didn't mean to ask is regarding your Achilles synotomy after you've done your yeah. Ponseti and you're uh, ready to fix the Aquinas. I've heard some reports of some people doing it in the office under local anesthesia versus going to OR. Do you have any
2: preference? Uh, my preference is always in the office. I will do them in the office up till six months of age. Um, so for a couple reasons. One is convenience. Another is cost. Um, I I did my first few in the operating room to make sure I knew what I was doing. And then once I felt really comfortable doing them, I, I've done them all in the office ever since. Hundreds probably at this point. Yeah. Um, the way I do it is you put a little LMX cream or some kind of uh, you know, local cream on the area. And then I'll come in and inject one cc of a plain lidocaine superficially and then uh, get half a cc. And then deep in the tendon sheath gets another half cc. And then I use a three millimeter beaver blade, a little cataract beaver blade and I go uh, just medial to the Achilles tendon and just cut it right there in a quick little uh, three millimeter incision, hold pressure for 15, 20 seconds, there's no more bleeding and you're done. A couple of nice things that's, about, that's nice about doing in the office is the babies don't cry when you actually do the procedure. They cry when you dorsiflex the foot, when, that, when you are stretching all those posterior structures out for the first time. Right. What's nice about that crying is when they Valsalva, the foot turns the most scary shade of white you've ever seen in your entire life when you first dorsiflex that foot. And you think, oh my God, what have I done? And that's that like two vessel foot that goes into spasm for being in that position. And you got to wait for it to recover. Now, when they valsalva and cry, that blood flow comes rushing right back in. When they're under anesthesia, you got to wait till they wake up to see that blood flow come back. And that's a long 10 minutes. I'll tell you, it's a long 10 minutes. Yeah, I, I got, I used to get the French money. fry lights out. Oh yeah. I got I, <laughs> my first cup. I had like a French fry lights, everything out. Um, <laughs> but uh, so another good thing is I will tell you that uh, Tony Herring in Texas tells a good story when he was a brand new staff, he uh, had a baby lose their ET tube and their IV at the same time. And he's sitting there holding the 15 blade thinking, how in the heck am I going to do a trach on this little baby? Thankfully the baby was fine. But he's got a nice little saying, which is they may cry in the clinic, but they don't die in the clinic.
1: There it is. There it is. There it is. So, you know, we have a specialist on on our on our podcast right now on Clubfoot. And just before we completely wrap it up, you know, what are the top five things you hope that residents medical students and anyone else dealing with these uh, this pathology, what,
2: what are you hoping that they can get from this yeah. talk? Even fellows. Yeah. So the first and foremost is a child who has been successfully treated with the Ponsetti Clubfoot treatment should expect to have a normal functioning foot. There's no uh, limitations to them. You know, so Troy Aikman had a clubfoot. Um Mia Hamm had clubfoot. There's been, you know, amazing, achieving, athletic uh, people in the, who've had club feet, and if you treat them the right way, sky's the limit. It's not a uh, limiting diagnosis. So it it's really something that will allow um, w- when you treat it the right way. It really is like it never happened. Mm-hmm. yeah someone might need to wear like a one shoe that's a nine the other shoe might be a 10 well guess what zappos now does that for you, yeah. you buy different pair size pair of shoes um but that, that's it that, that's that's the most important thing the other stuff you know you gotta remember your mnemonic you gotta remember cave uh understand that if you don't have aquinas it may not be clubfoot uh understand that if you go watch the video uh of the Ponsetti model uh, from globalhelp.org on, on YouTube, it, it will really help you understand. You'll watch that anterior process of the talus. It, it's almost like if you look at a map of Pangea before all the continents split up, you can see where Africa used to fit into South America and all those things, right? right. It, it, if you look at how that anterior process of the talus fits in the sinus tarsi, you're like, oh yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. It's like it was designed to go there. Yeah. It's like a puzzle piece. And, I mean, I, you know, you probably remember back to your first day in anatomy lab and you, you go back and you look at these organs and you're like, man, this design is really amazing. Um, and when you go back and you learn all those horribly boring things and you got a little study for your OITEs about cartilage and how like cartilage on cartilage is like 100 times smoother than ice on ice and all those amazing things. The design there is really amazing. If you go and watch those videos, you really understand the, the, the whole rotation of the calcaneopedal block. And it doesn't just apply to club foot. If you look at your own foot right now and you swing your forefoot up into supination and then out into eversion and watch what your calcaneus does while you do all that, you'll see how it all works together. I will tell you that I used to think the foot was just a dumb hand. Uh, and then I really got to appreciate. Uh, how the foot works, and appreciate what it takes to correct these feet, and I gained a lot more appreciation for the foot.
0: Dr. Ganzudis, I, I really appreciate you. We really appreciate you coming on and talking about club foot. I think this was a great talk. I think we definitely all My pleasure, guys. Um, you know, I think, you know, again, thank you so much, and uh, before you go, we always ask our guests, you know, if there's oh any way that the uh, that the listeners can reach out to you or that's email or social media or follow you or anything um that you would like to share don't don't have sure. to but if you would like yeah, no to. i mean
2: the most accessible way to reach me is probably uh twitter uh <laughs> which is unfortunate for my my family that uh, but, uh <laughs> that's easier than email um okay. i'm uh, at Peds underscore ortho and my email if you need to reach me i'm not all that great at checking email to be honest with you but it's just md at gmail.com but uh i do check my twitter bar i check my email which is bad
0: well that's how it goes sometimes yeah. <laughs> um dr we really again thanks thanks so much for being a guest
2: hey guys my pleasure thanks for having me